you turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Second Corinthians chapter 10. As we continue our look at Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we're going <clears> to <throat> see this morning an, an abrupt change of tone. Some scholars have said the last four chapters were probably another letter. It's so different. And Paul really, it's not really different uh, from what we're used to Paul, right? We know Paul is, uh, is going to stand for the gospel. He's going to deal with opposition. That's, that's Paul. We're used to that. Um, we've, we've seen in the last few chapters Paul's love for the Corinthians. He loves them. He loves the report Titus has given. He loves about the desire of this wonderful unity of Jewish and Gentile churches working together and meeting the need of the saints in Jerusalem. He loves, excited about gospel impact. And then we come to this letter where now he begins to address uh, his critics that need to be dealt with. He begins to address the false teachers. And we see Paul's passion, right? He is going to engage and understand um, this battle, not in the sense of put up your dukes, right? I'm going to come at you. But a spiritual battle. And I, I would tell you this morning, I don't think this would surprise you, that you too are involved in this. I know this is a situation Paul is dealing from, with some specific things, but the, the idea of a spiritual battle involves you. I don't know if you know this or not, but you are at war. Whether you're pro proclaiming Christ or not, you are on a side of it, right? If we are proclaiming Christ, then we are for Christ. We have his word. We want to see uh, the light go forward. If you're not proclaiming Christ this morning, you are in fact in darkness. And my advice to you and my, my plead to you is repent. Today must be a day of salvation. Repent and believe. So we're going to see here in a moment, we'll read the passage, and we'll see this immediate break. And Paul is going to use some language, right? He's coming at us with many military terms. It's as if he's, he's like, this is great, God is good, now we're at war. Let's, right, let's just turn the corner here and, and let's, go, let's get at it. And so we have to be uh, an understanding, right? We have to have some grace in us and go, hey, uh, this is us, this is our brother. He is writing and God is using him in a special way, but he's writing with you in mind as well, right? It's the Holy Spirit. And so we have to realize that this battle is ours too. So we're going to glean some lessons from Paul. But one of the things that I think is necessary today as I, as I cover this topic, as we look at this passage, you may be thinking, uh, this is for someone else. Uh, clearly, this is not me. Well, it's, it's us. It's you, right? It's me too. And I was reminded, often we look at these things and go, well, someone else will take care of it, or it's not really that bad, or whatever the, the, the justification of not engaging in the worldviews, and the ideologies, and the philosophies, and the lies that are happening in our culture, right? We may give excuses for that, but it's up to us. And we may feel inadequate, I get that. But it's up to us. God has called us to this. There was a story of uh, during Spurgeon, I guess Spurgeon had shared this story, at least at one point, if someone was making note of it, that he was uh, either teaching a Sunday school class for some boys or, or made known of some boys in a Sunday school class, and they were reading through Isaiah and taking turns. 
They were reading, or excuse me, in Daniel, not Isaiah. That would be a good one too. But they were reading in Daniel. And they came to, to Daniel chapter 6. And the first few verses, it's talking about uh, the, just the powerful spirit that is upon Daniel. And as the boy was reading, he, he, the, the, the text says he had an excellent spirit, or in the, in the New American Standard, an extraordinary spirit. And the, the, the young lad was reading this, and instead of saying spirit, he said spine. He has an excellent spine. And there was a moment of pause where they realized, yeah, that's not the correct reading, but that's some pretty good theology. In the church, we need to have the Holy Spirit, an excellent spirit. In the church today, as in always throughout history, we need to have an excellent spine. We need to stand because God's truth is true, and the world is believing a lie. I remember a movie that Errol Flynn was in. It was called Captain Blood. It sounds kind of morbid, but it was a really good movie, swashbuckling movie. He encourages one lad in that movie to do some things for him. And his response is always, we're going to get caught. We're going to get caught. Oh, this, I'm going to get caught. This is... And at the end of his list of requests, he, he said, and can you find a good chunk of wood about this long, about this wide? To response, he said, oh, yeah, I can find that. And he said, good, strap it to your back. It needs some stiffening. <laughs> this is us. Here is our battle. Listen to what Paul says. I'll read the first six verses of chapter 10, 2 Corinthians. Now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with you, or with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Let me offer a brief prayer. Lord, as we look at this text this morning, we ask your Spirit would be with us. The Holy Spirit would be unfolding and instructing and teaching. Lord, get me out of the way that we would receive what you have. We commit it to you and pray your blessing upon it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So as you can see, there is a sharp contrast. I mean, Paul has come through this wonderful moment of God's grace. God's grace is extended to you right? We're doing this collection. We're doing a work. There's unity in the church now, right? We've come to this word now at this time. We see Paul change. We see him change from we to I. He makes it very clear, right? Even though he references his co-workers, Titus and Timothy, he here acknowledges that I, right now, I, Paul, don't lose sight of that. This is purposeful. 
You know, last week when I had mentioned in my sermon the importance of unity, and unity is never to be sought after uh, at the compromise of truth. If you don't have truth, you're unifying under nothing, right? You can unify under anything. We must unify under truth. And we see in Paul that he is going to work in this church and bring unity to the church and deal with the, the opposition and the, the false gospels and the teachings that are happening with this desire. We're going to come under the truth. And a lot of his enemies have really misunderstood Paul, right? I mean, they have, they have critiqued him pretty harshly. You know, he's short, right? He doesn't talk well. He's not a, this rhetorical, robust guy as Apollos. Remember, yeah, there's all those factions in the early church. Clearly, some of those things are still going on. And we see in the second letter, right, that, that Titus has, re, has come from them, right? Remember, he re, was reunited with Titus, and he hears all the good news, and then he's excited. And then he goes into the giving, and he does all this stuff. But then, clearly, we have some, some moment where Titus gave him the good stuff, right? Maybe. And then held off, and he saw Paul's disposition. Paul's really excited about the Corinthians. And then maybe Titus reported everything else that's going on. So clearly Paul has some knowledge. And he's going to deal with it. And listen to the military terms. What do you see? I thought Paul writes this. Verse 3, we see the word war. Verse 4, we see weapons, warfare, destruction of fortresses. Verse 5, we see destroying speculations and every lofty thing. Verse 6, being ready to punish all disobedience, right? He's going to do some court-martialing, isn't he? I'm coming, and this is what we're going to do. There's the tone of it. That's the language of it. So what are we, right? We're not going into Corinth and dealing with these situations, but there is a universal aspect to all of this. The first thing I have in your notes is in this warfare, in this, title, this message, I, I've titled this message, Our Warfare and Our Weapons. My first point is the character Right? What is the character? What is your disposition as we approach this? Paul begins by saying, Now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Right? Now we have the gospel right back. We know what this is about. Here's the character, heart of Christ, the meekness and gentleness. Now we see an accusation. Right? I who am meek when face to face, right? There's some accusation. He's this meek guy. He doesn't, he's not bold. When I'm face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. Then he says in verse 2, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some. Now notice Paul's writing to the church, but he's addressing, right, those detractors, those who are coming, those who are compromising, those who have said, we have letters of recommendation. Remember, he told the Corinthians, I don't need letters. You're my letter. You live for the, for the truth of the gospel. You're my proof of my ministry. We see there's this faction, right? And the, the tendency to, to divide this church. And Paul's saying, Here's, I'm coming. We have to deal with situations, right? He's courageous against some who regard, there's another accusation against Paul, who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. Right now, that we'll see a little later is basically a non-believer. They are calling Paul a non-believer. So here it is, right? We see two accusations, and we see Paul's disposition, his character. Can we say, is it honest to say that you're going to face accusations as you stand for Christ? Some of us believe that. Yeah, that was rhetorical, I know, right? But yes, yes. 
and this has been going on since the beginning, right? From the very beginning at the tree, what do we see Satan do with Eve, right? There's that accusation. Did God really say, has indeed, did he say that? Let's throw some doubt on God. Let's, let's cast a lying idea in your mind about the truth of God and his proclamation. This is what Satan does. <clears throat> and so for us, right, we know this battle is raging. We know this is happening. We know we're going to deal with accusations. Christ has told us you're going to face trials. He's told the disciples you're going to have problems in this world. Guess what? If you profess Christ and you stand for Christ... This is us. What do we need to learn? You're going to have opposition. There's going to be accusations. So Paul approaches this first to disarm it. Notice that he makes this about the, the, the issue of the gospel and not about Paul and these people. He says, I am going to come, right, like Christ with meekness and gentleness. I urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Right? If we have any love for Christ, this is about Christ. This is about the gospel. It's not about us coming and putting up our dukes. It's not about me and you in this fight. It's about what you believe about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he responds, in essence, to this accusation with the nature and temperament of Christ. Right? We see meekness in Jesus. Right? He, he dealt with a disgrace at Calvary. Think of the, the picture there of many who spat upon him who cursed him on the tree, we see this. And yet there's is, there is meekness. He had all the power necessary to call down legions of angels. I mean, you realize that Jesus on the cross, all he has to do is speak. Many times do we see that even in what's recorded in the Gospels, him speaking and things changing. Right? We should know all he has to do is speak, yet there is meekness. He knows why he is there. You and me. Redemption, salvation. We see his gentleness. He is gracious. He is fair. I mean, we see this even before he goes to Calvary. Think of Pontius Pilate asking Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Why does he ask that? Because Christ has a meek and gentle dignity about him, doesn't he? I mean, Pilate reckons there is some type of royalty here. This is the response. This is the character. Here's how we disarm those. We don't rise to the agitation of those accusing us. We approach it with gentleness and meekness. Now, is that easy to do? To do? Yeah, we're all quiet on that one. Yeah, we know. That's not always easy, is it? But see, God has placed you in the world, brother, sister, in certain situations that you'd be a light for him. And we... It, extend, right, the hands of Christ when we operate with this disposition. You're not like the world. You don't respond, right? You respond with seven times 70. You have forgiveness in your heart. You are patient. There's something different about you. So Paul sets this tone. I'm going to deal with these accusations. I'm going to come like this, but it's also balanced, right? He's not going to come there and let you just slap him, slap him around a little bit. He turns around in verse 2, and he talks about how he's going to confront them. Right? His disposition is, is gentleness and meekness, but his confrontation will be confidence and courage. I mean, I think Paul here is kind of simply saying, hey, don't forget I'm coming in person, right? I'm coming in power. 
you better take note, right? He kind of gives a little bit of a warning there, doesn't he? He says, I ask that when I am present, right? I'm coming. Here's my request. I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some. I don't have to do it with all y'all, right? That's in the Greek, all y'all. So he comes with confidence. Paul has a, right, a robust understanding of the gospel of Christ. And he knows it well, and he is confident in it. He knows in whom he has believed. I mean, the number one thing that you and I must you know, glean here is to understand that there is, must be a conviction in you. It's conviction that, that, that at the end of the day will be the one left standing. It will not be the one who's compromising. Right? You see it in Paul. I have confidence. Why? Because there is this wonderful God who grabbed my soul right from the gutter. Think of Paul. I, was, I, I gave testimony. You guys stoned Stephen. This is a good thing. I held their coats. I persecuted the church. Now what is he doing? Man, I know. And too often we think about our, our sin and our, our struggles and our, our, maybe the train wreck of our life, and it cripples what's happening. It's crippling what God is doing. Yes, there needs to be repentance if that's where you're at, but we must grow in our confidence. He didn't save you just so you can sit on your talents. So there must be courage. Paul identifies courage, right? And the, the idea, of course, is to be bold. That's to challenge or defy possible danger or opposition. There's the word. I'm going to be confident in my courage. So Paul is not saying, I'm going to show up. I'm going to avoid confrontation, right? It's too late. He wrote it. He's going to do some confrontation. Now, is that an easy thing to do? No, but it's done with meekness and gentleness. It's done with confidence because it's not about Paul and these other people, even though he's dealing with them. But it's about what they think about Christ. I believe Paul could care less what they think about him. I don't think he has a prideful bone in his body to go, I'll, I can rhetorical, I've got some skills, I've got some speech. I don't think any of it's here. His passion is what? With meekness and gentleness I come, I would oppose those who would come into the church and present a false gospel, who would present anything that would detract from Christ, that they, any of those that would add to it, like the Judaizers. And I think Paul is saying for us, brothers and sisters, we in this disposition of, of meekness and gentleness, must also be confident in what we believe and be courageous enough to stand. I mean, they call Paul the accusation, right? As I mentioned earlier, they're calling him an unbeliever. He walked according to the flesh. We simply pick up here that the accusations against you, and I think uh, you've probably ex maybe have experienced this in life, accusations are usually put on you from those who are doing the very things they accuse you of. I mean, this is really what the false teachers, they themselves, are guilty of. They, they are not believing. There is an arrogance in them, an egotism. There is a self-condemnation they have against Paul because he's not like us. We're the good ones. We've got the pedigree. We've got right, all the letters. And what are they trying to do to this church? Discredit 
Discredit Paul. What does the enemy want to do? Discredit your testimony. Discredit your, your walk with Christ. Discredit the, the serving you do in the church. Discredit your faithful proclamation. Discredit you. Make no doubt about it, you're in a war. Remember, Paul is addressing the church. Make note of that. He's not simply going, hey, I'm going to show up to deal with these guys. I'm calling all y'all, again, that's in the Greek, to stand with me against those who oppose Christ. He's not standing alone. There was a, a funny Peanuts cartoon. I'm sure you're filled with, uh, familiar with Charlie Brown, but there was one that depicted uh, Lucy and Linus, brother and sister. And if you have siblings, maybe you can relate to this where Lucy demanded that Linus would get up and change the television. This is, of course, is back before remotes, right? I don't know if you, I'm old enough to remember that, right? Dad would say, turn the channel. i try to get my brother. He'd make me. I was the youngest. That's how that worked. <clears throat> but Lucy, or excuse me, Linus responds and says, what do you think? What gives you the right to demand of me to get up and change the channel? And Lucy responds and says, these five fingers. Since he says, individually, they are nothing. When I curl them together, (laughs) like this, in a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. Linus responds and says, what channel do you want? (laughs) And as he's walking to the television, he looks at his own fingers and says, why can't you guys get organized like that? And that might be the wrong picture of putting up our dukes, right? But Paul has in this, his disposition, even though it's meekness and gentleness, is that we, in confidence of the gospel of Jesus Christ, with courage, would stand together. This becomes very important as we see this unfold. Because it roots, right? And it encourages me to be confident when I stand with others who are also confident. So there's the character of this. He sets the tone. It's about the gospel, not about us. But we're going to have a conversation. I'm coming, right? Second thing we see in verses 3 through the first part of 4 is the uniqueness, what I say, the uniqueness of our weapons. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. So again, right, we're not putting up our dukes right? It's not about us getting right. He's saying it's about the gospel. Our weapons are not of the flesh. I want you to note here that Paul, in essence, uh, characterizes all of human behavior of outside of Christ, all those outside of Christ. It doesn't matter to what extent, but he sees them as purely uh, worldly, right? That's their disposition, And so Paul is saying, you know, when I come, I'm going to come with meekness, gentleness, confidence. I'm going to wage, if you will, war. I'm going to engage in those, right, who are outside, right? Because he is seeing the false teachers are outside. And so for us, we see that Paul is, in essence, is saying, hey, I live in this world, but I'm not of this world, right? I'm not going to conduct myself, especially in in evangelism or the confrontation of the gospel and the way the world works. This is true to Scripture. Listen to how our Savior has prayed for you. I have given them, this is John 17, I've given them your word, 
and the world has hated them. This is where we're at. Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we see as we engage the uniqueness of our, our warfare, the uniqueness of our weapons, is that we are not to apply worldly ideas or standards to this battle. Right? We fight as God's soldiers according to what he says, according to his word. Because it's not about, in essence, Tyson or ourselves, but it is who I represent. It is about Christ and his kingdom. Now understand, right, what we're up against. Satan will use everything available to resist the, the proclamation, the, the gospel going forward. He will use things such as deceit. He will use things such as lies and schemes and trickery and a whole bunch of other stuff that we could list to this. But we are not to respond in those moments of accusation, in the moments of defending the truth, in the same way. We are marked different. Right? God's, God's armaments, if you will, are truth. Absolutely. His word. Honesty, integrity, justice, holiness, faithfulness, righteousness. God requires that us, his followers, would be faithful with his precepts. That we'd implement his commands and be obedient to them. His purposes. We are to have a, a wholehearted commitment and dedication to Christ. Our allegiance and our affection lies with him. So, all right, by encouragement, right, we must be men and women of prayer. We must commune with God. We must put on the full armor of God. As we see in Ephesians 6, right? Peace, truth, the sword of the Spirit must be something that we know and know how to use. The weapons of the world are opposite, right? And we see this demonstrated. We know that there is uh, the opposite of lie is truth. The opposite of darkness is light, grief and joy, death and life. Today we have many who simply believe that life is meaningless. If you remember that stat I shared a few Sundays back, that 35 and younger, those in America today, do not believe. I think it's something like 55%. Do not believe in objective truth. That means this will lead to a trajectory that life is meaningless. But Satan is at work, and we see it. He uses deception. Adam and Eve in, in the garden, Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira. We see his, his cruel force. Abel, the first victim of the Old Testament, Stephen is the first martyr of the New Testament. He simply attempts to impede the power of the gospel. And as we respond, or we respond with truth, we engage in the worldviews that are prevalent. We must learn something about critical theory and critical race theory and intersectionality because that's what's happening. We must understand what the Bible teaches about sexuality because there are many who are, who are living with the lie and the perversion that is happening. We have to speak truth to those things. And we must be in line with God's word. It must not be a compromise. As Paul will say here uh, in our next point, that these are div divine power. 
God's truth is divine power. And it's when we're in line with God, his word, his truth, what he says about marriage, what he says about husbands, what he says about wives, what he says about children, what he says about families, what he says about the church, we must be in line with it. There was a story of of Westminster Chapel in London, and there was uh, boys who would do their work, and they they would whistle the tune when it chimed. If you're familiar with the Westminster chime, dun, 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 right? And they found that a lot of the boys who were working and whistling that, that, that tune, over time they realized that they were whistling completely out of tune. They had some flat notes and some things going on, and someone picked up on all these boys who were, you're whistling the Westminster chime wrong. And they realized that the chimes themselves Something had happened and they were not chiming true, right? The the chimes from the chapel were slightly out of tune. And so all those who were hearing the tune started mimicking and copying the tune. You see, I, I share that simply because if we're not right in line with God's word, we end up mimicking and revealing and, and following and sharing what is not truth. This is why we must be in our Bibles. It must be open. We must be singing the, the tunes, right? The tune or the time or the chime of God's word. So there's the uniqueness. We see our disposition. The uniqueness is not flesh and blood. And let's get our dukes up. It is responding and challenging the worldviews of our day with God's truth. And this leads into the engagement. Second part of verse 4 into 5. The engagement of our warfare, Paul says, but divinely powerful for the destruction of forces. It's not from the flesh, but they're divinely powerful. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every, every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We're in line with God's word. We start to see, right, divine power. It is his word. Right, remember the motto from John Knox. I shared this last week. I'll share it again today. With God, man is always in the majority. Right? So when a Christian understands that he is in the majority, when, he, when he's with Christ, when he's in God's word, he becomes right an enemy destroyer, if you will. It's agreeable to Scripture. Proverbs 21, 22 says, A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. So Paul is unfolding it for us, isn't he? Fortresses, the systems of this world, the, the schemes and structures, things that are in place that Satan uses to frustrate and obstruct the gospel. Paul says the message of God's word destroys these fortresses. They are no match for the enemy. Why in Matthew 16, we see the gates of hell will not prevail. That is a defensive position. It will take ground. So Paul has this military picture. That the ministry is a mighty conquering army. You are involved in it. Our disposition is meekness, gentleness, confidence, courage. Our weapons are not of this world. They're not of the flesh or of the world. They are God's word, his truth. And now when we engage, right, this, we don't respond in kind. Paul came to the Corinthians. They're, they're, they're accusing him of not having these or, oratorical skills. And so he comes and, and he says, that's not how I approached you. 
You remember back in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, I, I came not to you in superior of speech or superiority of speech or wisdom, but I proclaimed the testimony of God. I, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, him crucified. And he plants a church on this and he grows a church on the gospel. So his enemies are saying, you're inferior because you lack this thing. And as he engages them, he's not coming back and saying, look, well, let me respond to you on the platform you say. No, he comes back and says, here is, again, this engagement is the gospel. It is his language, his battlefield language. It is destroying speculation. Those who who reason wrong or incorrectly. Those lofty things, those things that the world has built up and they, they take pride in, they take confidence in. He says, no, we will cast those things down. Anything that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. So Paul simply is saying any human theory, any worldview, right, humanism, naturalism, socialism, Fascism. I mean, we can go down the list, these theories that are against the knowledge of God. We will cast them down. Paul is working a military strategy. So he engages his opponents, right? These fortresses, these arguments they might have. His weapons, the knowledge of God, truth. Which means Christians above all people should should be logical, right, and intelligent, and think rightly about God in this world. We should be full of His Spirit. What is the victory? We engage this. What is the victory, right? Repentance and belief that those who are outside of Christ come, that their thoughts are brought captive into obedience to Christ. It is Christ who transforms thought patterns. We no longer think in line with the world. They begin to think, right, and follow after Christ. I mean, no doubt Paul has in his mind with all this military language, right, the, the idea that in ancient warfare, when strongholds were captured, the towers were pulled down, the defenders were taken into captivity. But Paul's point is to simply say, we're going to break down the thinking and the ideology and the philosophy, right, and we're going to replace it with thoughts that follow after Christ. We're going to break the mental, right, thinking, the structures the plans, the schemes, and we're going to see Christ transform their lives to a new allegiance. Their affections are no longer for the world, but they're for Jesus. This is the engagement. How does Christ bring this about? Well, he does it through you and I. We are to take the light of the gospel to the dark world. We are not to be fearful or be afraid. We are to fear God, not men. We are to be wise and discerning, absolutely. But we must have confidence in the gospel. And when it goes forward, there will be no bloodshed on a battlefield. But the captives are brought to the obedience of Jesus. See, that's the key word, right? Obedience, following. When people repent and confess their sins, and they realize the greatest need of my soul to be reconciled to my Creator. And the only way that happens is through Jesus. 
When Christ, the Spirit, right, regenerates and brings us and makes us willing to believe and profess and to follow, he reshapes our thinking. Our allegiance is changed. This is what Paul says when we engage this. These are the victories. And it leads me to my last, my last point here. We see the character of it, the uniqueness of our weapons, not like the world. When we engage, we desire right, life change. And the last point, verse 6 says, uh, we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. So I simply say the resolve. You have to have some resolve to finish the battle. I'm sure you're familiar with the saying, to the victors belong the spoils, right? Well, if there are victors, then there are those who are defeated. And Paul simply is, is focused and resolved on not yielding until every thought is brought captive. He wants to see obedience in the Corinthian church. He wants to see those who are outside come to know him. He wants to see these false teachers come to repentance or to get out. But he's going to do that with gentle and gentleness and meekness, confidence. And he's not going to yield until it's done. He's not going to break. And Paul has told us this and will tell us this when we know nothing else to do. Stand. Stand firm. And let nothing move you. Paul is, is, is sure, and, and to bring it right back into the idea that it's, uh, it's the Lord's battle. He has told us in Romans twelve nineteen never uh, to take your own vengeance or revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. It is written, vengeance is mine. I will, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul is confident in this engagement that Christ controls the situation. He's addressing the whole church. He's calling all his brothers and sisters to stand with the gospel there. His, his confidence will grow. He wants to deal with the false teachers because the false teachers touch every member of the church. They're the ones who take the gospel and knock it out of tune, so we start singing the wrong tune or whistling the wrong tune. And he was resolved to exercise discipline. He trusts the Holy Spirit, trusts the gospel, believes in God's kingdom. He's resolved. God's kingdom is forever. We sang that a few times this morning. It comes to this question, and why I end with resolve? The question really, I think for some of us, and maybe you're thinking other ones, is how does Satan, right, work his way into a family? How does he work his way into a church where there becomes those who once believed, who had full of conviction, now experience compromise? I think that's a, a, a really important question. Jesus gives us some insight Right? If we're in a spiritual battle on the God of this world, he tells us about him. He says in John 8, speaking of Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So your adversary is a liar. This is what he does. 
And as you look at his tactics and how he lies, you begin to see how, the, how this evil one makes his way into your family. We go back to the, to the garden, and it's on purpose that Satan doesn't first try to tempt Adam. Why is it that he goes after his wife? Because now it's, it's not about sin per se. Right now it's about allegiance. Adam loves his wife. And Satan has packaged sin, the package of his wife. And at this moment, what does he do? He chooses creation over the creator. Satan continues to do this. He is lying to our culture, right? Here's the lies. He lies to our culture about sexuality, about homosexuality, about gender identity and transgenderism. Those are lies. God made male and female. Marriage is between a man and a woman. All of that is a lie. He lies to our young people about critical theory and critical race theory, intersectionality, socialism, communism, and wokeism. Those are lies, and they stand contrary to the gospel of Christ. They actually invoke racism. He lies to our children through the school district and social media and the internet. He manipulates our thinking, right, through the, through the, the Google searches and, and the things that we search that we are directed. I mean, he is active in all these areas. And why is this important to note that if, if Christ says he is a liar and is the father of lies and we see it in our culture, well, then how is he going to get it into your life? How is he going to bring compromise to you? Well, he's going to do it through your spouse, through your children, through your loved ones. This is why you see in our culture this drive to pervert the children. Because a father who is the Christ figure of the home is, is going to have a heart that breaks when he has to right, separate or do something or bring uh, some type of divide between him and his children. What does Satan do through the children, through your loved ones? What does he do? He's packaging sin. He knows he cannot take you from the grip of Christ. He will make you inactive. He will do his best that you become a mouthpiece for him. Some of us in our church, you know what I'm talking about. You feel it. You know you have loved ones who are compromising the truth and you have a a decision to make. I love my spouse. I love my children. And what is he doing? He wants you, right? Compromised, just like Adam. See, this is what Jesus is talking about. This is why you have to be resolved. In Matthew 10, listen to what Jesus says. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. 
find it? Why is this necessary for Jesus to speak this way? Because the father of lies of this world is captivating the hearts of your loved ones. It's easy today. There's pressure to compromise. But Paul says, not some thoughts. Every thought. Every thought captive. Obedience to Christ. There are many today who don't realize that you, right, the church is in a spiritual battle. Many of us fail to realize the seriousness. Well, we'll compromise here, right? You know, it's okay. Well, they're just sowing their wild oats, whatever we want to say. This ideology, these lies are in your living room. The social media you watch, the television programs you watch, the social media, everything that you see, it is edited and tainted to present a worldview that is opposite Christ. Why? Because Satan hates Jesus. And his followers hate Christ so much that they wish, they desire to put that punishment that they lost out on, put it on his followers. Understand, you're in a spiritual battle. Is it right for Paul to use this language? War, weapons, destruction? Yeah, why? Because what's at stake? Your soul, an eternity in hell. That's the stakes. That's what's going on. So today, right, as you hear this word, listen. The character of it as we engage this warfare is what? Meekness, gentleness. We don't compromise. No, we have confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ and we have courage. And that grows as more of us have courage. We see the contrast of the weapons of the world. We don't respond in kind. We respond with truth. God's truth. We engage this warfare. We have to go to dark places. This is why Jesus said in the Great Commission, when he sends you out, I will be with you, even to the end of the age. And we must resolve. The best thing for our souls and our loved ones and raise your children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Husbands, wash your wife in the word of God. Husbands, take seriously your role in the family. Men, rise up. Be strong. Just as, as Paul will tell the Corinthians, act like men. We're in a battle. And there is no quarter. He will not rest until our great Lord returns. So you see why we need an excellent spirit. You also see why we need an excellent spine. Let's pray. Father, we, we are grateful that in this, in this battle, in this war, you, you are God. Satan is a defeated foe. He's been kicked out of heaven. But he will be cast into the eternal lake of fire. But Lord, while we live, and as you tarry, we will engage, Lord, his lies. We will engage, Lord, these areas. Make us mindful of the compromise. When it wants to enter our living rooms, let us bring the sword of the Spirit to task. When it enters the church, Lord, through leaders who feel compromised, or our families, Lord, let us not yield your truth 
would stand with love, with patience, meekness, with gentleness, yet with confidence and courage. We must not, Lord, lose your truth. We pray your spirit, Lord, to continue to build your church, strengthen your church, make us mindful of, of the war that is raging. And let us not be those who have our swords in their sheath, but have them firmly gripped in our hands as we, Lord, follow after you. We thank you, God, that you are all-powerful, almighty, and all this, Lord, will be done according to your purpose, your plan. We pray it for your glory, the strength of your church, for the testimony of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.